0: So it's my privilege today to be uh, opening up uh, the scriptures as we think about the uh, seven part seven of a seven part series that we're doing called the end of the beginning, which is Jesus' final days of ministry. So for over two years now, we've been on this three-year journey through the Bible, and now we've arrived at the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. And in recent weeks, uh, we looked at the triumphal entry, we looked at the exchanges between the religious authorities and Jesus in the temple courts, we spent some time in the upper room with Jesus uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Josh led us through a a time focused on the Last Supper. And then last week, uh, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, observing uh, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus as they took him um, before the council and the uh, the high priests and the, the other leaders. Um, these are big events uh, in the biblical storyline for sure. I was sharing with our life group um, this last Tuesday evening that something that's really come to me by force this time as we've been reading and studying together is uh, the thought that perhaps Peter made his great boast of faithfulness. You remember he said, Lord, all others may deny you. I will never deny you. I will die uh, for you. I will die with you. And, uh, and all the other disciples agreed with that sentiment. And, uh, but I was thinking that, that Peter really believed that. That wasn't something that he took lightly or said flippantly or didn't really, 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 really mean. I, I really think Peter uh, fully intended uh, if that were to be the case, that he would die with jesus um, um, because Peter was thinking there 's going to be a fight right i mean if you 're going to take jesus you 're going you' better be prepared to fight because there's going to be a fight and I mean even Judas was absolutely convinced there was going to be a fight because in the in uh, mark fourteen forty four he told the leaders he said. He said, have your weapons ready and have a full guard on hand and when you arrest him, make sure you put him under full guard. Why would he say that? Because Judas was absolutely convinced there was going to be a fight. It's just like Peter and just like pretty much everybody else except for Jesus. And then there's that scene where Peter pulls his sword in the garden and takes off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. I really believe that Peter was prepared to die for Jesus and die with him. Um, it's like, you know, going out in a blaze of glory. How many of you have seen the movie, The Three Musketeers, that scene towards the end where they're in the corridors below the, the monastery or whatever it is, and, and uh, the cameras slow it down, and it's the musketeers, and they charge the whole uh, royal guard, and the cameras go into slow motion, and it's, it's like going out in a blaze of glory. I, I think that that's how uh, Peter probably was envisioning maybe his last days, but then there's those words from Jesus. Put up your sword. Put your sword back in its place. He said, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then these words recorded in Matthew 26. These words from Jesus. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's thousands, tens, 10,000 angels. 10,000 angels according to the song, right? Think about it. The history that shaped these men's lives was fortified by stories of uh, encounters like, uh, I think, of Joshua and Gideon and Jehoshaphat and Elijah and others who uh, had seen and described battles just like this. Battles where the angels show up, right? So I've come to believe that Peter was willing to to fight and even die with Jesus. But what he wasn't prepared for was what Jesus had in mind, which was surrender without a fight. (laughs) <laughs> that's something that not any of the disciples had, had in mind. Jesus was thinking of the cross. How do, how do we know that? Well, we know it for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons we know it is because we just came from the Garden of Gethsemane where we overheard Jesus praying. And we know that the cross was fully on his mind. I think of the words later that Jesus would say to Pilate. He says uh, to Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over, that I might not be delivered over. This is uh, from John chapter 18. He says that I might not be delivered over, but my kingdom is not from the world. So last week we were observing the arrest and the mistrials of Jesus, we were in Mark 14 and 15. This week we're in Mark again in chapter 15. Uh, Mark 14 records Jesus before the high priest and the council and the mock trial and the, the false testimonies. Uh, Peter's denial... And then Jesus before uh, Pilate in chapter 15 is Jesus before Pilate. And then uh, in verses 16 through 20 of Mark 15, we have Jesus with the soldiers. And in each and all of these instances, Jesus is grossly mistreated. Each time he's tortured, ridiculed, humiliated, spat upon, beaten, and condemned to die. Each time, and each time the only reason that's ever given to justify it... Was the claims that he made that he was the Son of God? He was condemned for his words, not for his deeds. His words were offensive, blasphemous. So, what we have here is waves upon waves of suffering leading up to and culminating in the topic for today and hopefully throughout the week as we study together and as we discuss and as we think about the crucifixion of Jesus. I wish we could read it again for the first time. Let's pick up in verse 16 of Mark chapter 15 and just before we read there will you pray with me. Father in heaven I thank you for the opportunity to spend this time together with these dear folks in your word today. I thank you for each and every one here in this room and for those who are participating with us online as well. And as we spend this time together, Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word, by your spirit, so that our lives would be changed according to your will. And we would be careful to give you all the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32 It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Imagine that, the whole battalion for one man. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Do You notice how many times the words cross and crucified occur in that short passage we just read together. I count eight times. Now, the word crucify, uh, which is a verb, the word crucifixion, which would be the noun, literally mean to fasten to a cross. It comes from the Latin word for cross. Do you know what the Latin word for cross is? Anybody? Crux. Crux is the Latin word for cross, and the word's Crucify and crucifixion come to us from that word. So uh, then um, to be crucified would be to be crossified or to be fastened to a cross. I've often thought how our culture has been so influenced by our Christian faith in ways that even the culture fails to realize or be conscious of. And that word crux is one of those ways when so we talk about something being the crux of the matter. We'll say, What's, this is the crux of the matter. Well, where does that expression come from? It comes right from the heart of Christianity. To be uh, crucified is to be crucified. Now, the Romans pretty much invented crucifixion as a deterrent for any type of revolt against their authority. So they created it and intended it as a display. Crucifixion was a display, it was a spectacle. They were really uh, routinely done in high traffic areas so that there would be high visibility so that everybody would see and everybody would know this is what happens to anyone who would defy the powers of Rome. Now, would a visual image be inappropriate at this time? I don't believe so, but I think that sometimes our imaginations can paint a better picture. I've read medical descriptions of what a person would experience going through crucifixion. And I think that everyone should do that at least once in their lifetimes if you haven't. But I suspect that anyone of you who has ever been seriously injured would be able to extrapolate from that with your imagination and, and begin to imagine what it would be like for Jesus to experience crucifixion. And we would do well to think on those things because the scriptures appeal to us on the basis of these truths. There's many, many instances where that's the case. Uh, uh, the Lord's table observance is an example of that. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech thee therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. What are those mercies of God? The mercies of God in Jesus that he would offer himself and suffer and offer himself as a sacrifice and endure what he endured uh, on the cross. But as much as the Bible intends to give a very real and literal portrayal of actual events, from this point on in Scripture, the emphasis is on not so much the physical details of the cross or the historical events that we identify with crucifixion. They are more on what we would could call the theology of the cross. So as we journey through the rest of uh, the Bible together we will see that even just those two words, the cross, get used over and over again in reference to a whole body of truth about what it accomplished or what God accomplished through the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, how Jesus died is important because the violent, passionate uh, cruelty of the sufferings uh, that he went through were... The dredges of the depravity of fallen humanity. And that's important. Hebrews chapter 2, the author says he tasted death for us. But the emphasis going forward through the Bible from the Gospels forward into the letters, is not as much on the simple historical fact that Jesus died or that he was crucified, but on all that it accomplished, Um, what I refer to as the theology of the cross. Let me, let let me show you a few, just a few quick examples. Uh, Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's writing there, and, and he writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then in verses 22 and 23 he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so we have these references throughout the letters of the apostles to the cross and to the power of the cross and the significance of the cross. And to the triumph of the cross. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16. A really favorite passage of mine. says, for he himself is our peace. We sang about that this morning. Who has made us both one and has broken down in in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Almost a play on words, right? Killing the hostility. In the cross, in the crucifixion of Jesus, God destroyed the hostility that exists between the two. Who are the two? Well, in this case, it's the Jew and the Gentile. But I love to extrapolate from that because the truth is that the cross is one of, just one of the amazing um, accomplishments of the cross of Jesus, or the crucifixion of Jesus is the reconciling of people to each other. And I, I love how that works in scripture because if you have issues in your relationship with people, the cross is the answer because forgiveness is the answer. Because we will all hurt each other at times. And we aren't perfect. And we, and we make mistakes and we mess up. How do you deal with that? The Bible calls it sin, by the way. How do we deal with sin? Well, there's only one answer to sin, according to Scripture. One more verse. On, on, in, and keep, please understand, in case you don't already, that there are too many references to the cross and the significance of the cross and the power of the cross and what God accomplished through Jesus uh, on the cross, in the letters of the apostles, uh, going forward to to cover them e- in a sermon, even even in a cursory manner, there's just way too many. So these are only examples. Um, but uh, Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen and fourteen says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, or sin debt, if you will, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you, it's It's inescapable the significance here of the cross uh, uh, of Jesus. Um, All of the references, these three that we just read and and all the others, they they point to the the cross as the crux of history, whether that's your personal history or whether that's the history of the entire human race and the effects of the cross as... uh, designed by God, intended by God, uh, and the effects dis- described and alluded to throughout the New Testament in each instance are multiple and multifaceted. And we, we, there's no way we could, you spend the rest of your life trying to work through all of the, 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 the power and the impact that the cross has on, on our lives. Um, the cross features in the apostles teaching like the linchpin that opens the floodgates of heaven, because in the cross, God deals with sin. And, you know, we've spent the last year and a half journeying through the Old Testament, and I've said over and over uh, again, I've asked the question as we've journeyed along, um, you know, uh, can the, old, uh, the New Testament be uh, understood without a knowledge of the Old Testament? Do you remember the answer to that question? Can we understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament? The answer to the question, anybody? (laughs) The answer is yes, but not very well. You can pick up the Bible and read in the New Testament and come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that. But you will never have a really good understanding of the New Testament or a really thorough understanding of the gospel without the Old Testament because all the seeds of theology are in the Old Testament. Um, So, for example, last week, uh, we—no, two weeks ago, I guess it was, Josh led us uh, through the passages where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and they're celebrating the Passover together. What's that? The Passover. Oh, that's the Old Testament. Right? And if we go, as we go on through the Old Testament, the, the, you know, the, the blood of the Lamb, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. Well, Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming to the Jordan River? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus take away sin? By offering himself as a sacrifice. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are Christ-centered and cross-centered. The whole of Scripture is Christ-centered and cross-centered. Now, this is a little bit of a contentious issue. (laughs) And it always has been a contentious issue. Because to think that God would punish his own son in our place. And that our sin would actually be deserving of such drastic and horrible measures. Is what the apostles will later refer to as the offense of the cross. Like he said earlier, when the passage in Corinthians, the the uh, the Jews stumbled over it, and all of this is part of the theology of the cross, the ramifications of the cross, the the uh, things that that God accomplished through the death of uh, of Jesus. It offended people then, and offends people today. You know, how could God do that? How could God, who calls himself a father, punish his own son for others? I guess the answer is that God is not only father. He's also referred to in Scripture as the judge of all the earth. And how many of you know that righteousness and justice are also supreme virtues as well as love? And the cross of Jesus, the cross is what we're talking about. And the cross of Jesus was a spectacle. It was a display. Not only of the sacrificial love and grace of God, but also of the perfect justice and holiness of God. Or, if you will, the sinfulness of sin. See, that's that's one of our big problems, isn't it? We don't understand well the sinfulness of sin. And because we don't understand well the sinfulness of sin, that prevents us from owning our sin and from really repenting of our sin and really appreciating what the cross says and demonstrates to us. The theology of the cross, the crux of the matter, he is the crucified one. So here he is. Fastened up on a cross as a spectacle on display for all to see. And then he dies. He died. Jesus died on that cross. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, or lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. They mistook what he was saying. And someone ran and filled a sponge, because there was a, there was a, a kind of a, a, a legend that they had that, you know, if you were in trouble, Elijah might come and, and rescue you, uh, apparently. But uh, it says, some of the bystanders hearing, it says, he's called for Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. In verse 37, of Mark 15 says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then in verse 38, it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, there's a lot of detail in there too, isn't there? But I want to focus on one of the details and it's it's that detail that all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all pick up on this detail. The fact that the moment, the very moment Jesus breathed his last, the veil in the temple was torn. Both Matthew and Mark make the point of saying it was torn from the top to the bottom. Why would that be significant? Why is it here? Why did it happen? What did it mean? Over in John's gospel, he doesn't mention the veil. He, but he mentions Jesus' last words before he took his last breath, which were those words, it is finished. How do you say that, Dennis? To Tetelestai. Tetelestai, thank you. Yeah, it is finished. And there's a whole sermon in that too, isn't there? Right? <laughs> I heard that sermon. That was a good one. Um, but did you notice the veil did not rip? You see a, cur- a window and a, with a curtain, in, or or if you can imagine a, a large curtain uh, spanning a, a distance. Where's the pressure? The pressure would be in the sag, which means there'd be no pressure at the top at all. All the pressure would be on the bottom. And over time, maybe that curtain, even though it was several inches thick, maybe it just got old and worn out, and maybe just... Maybe it was just a coincidence that the very moment Jesus breathed his last breath, suddenly it ripped from the bottom up. But it didn't rip from the bottom up because it didn't rip. The gospel writers make it a point of saying that it tore. It says it was torn. It was torn. The veil was torn. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? How could that even happen? Well, the thing is, it couldn't just happen. It had to be an action taken upon it. And who would have taken that action? There's only one answer. You know what it is. God was making a statement, wasn't he? God was making a statement. What does he mean? What did God mean by tearing the veil of the temple? Well, you remember... The, the veil in the temple was set up to separate that holy of holy place, uh, the holy, holy of holies, where it's with the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very throne of God, where God would dwell as his people, but the people couldn't just walk into God's presence. Why not? Because of sin. And the whole sacrificial system and the whole tabernacle and temple system was all built around this idea that God is holy, and the only way you can approach a holy God is if your sin is covered. And that's where the whole sacrificial system comes from, and it's built on that idea that something or someone must sacrifice their life, their life's blood, as payment, as covering for sin and guilt. And we don't have to speculate or wonder about this at all, because the apostles actually tell us exactly what God was saying when he tore that veil. Because as we read over in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That is, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He's not only the sacrificial lamb, but he's also the great high priest. And all of this is pictured in old, the Old Testament as those in seed form. It's, 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 the, it's the crucifixion of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, 12, Paul writes... This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Boldness uh, with, uh, and access with confidence through faith in him. What Jesus accomplished by his crucifixion and death is the focus of scripture. And it's all intentional. It's all intentional. The work that God put in place. It's God sacrificing. It's God taking our place. It's God sending His Son. It's God offering His Son as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus wasn't just a victim, He wasn't just a victim, He was a gift. An offering, a sacrifice. He laid down his life by ascending to that cross. You know, they mock Jesus, right? They mocked him with the crown of thorns. They put the crown of thorns on his head and, 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 and a robe, a fancy robe on him. And they put a staff in his hand and they got down on their knees and they mocked him. And they said, hail, hail, king of the Jews. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Jesus associated his crucifixion with his exaltation. Over in John chapter 12. And we're only going to look at a few more verses together this morning. But I do want you to, to look at a couple more with me. John chapter 12, verses 31 to 33. Jesus is speaking. This is before he went to the cross. And, but just before. And he says in John chapter 12, verse 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself and then uh, John adds this note he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die you see jesus associated his cross with his throne over in colossians chapter 2 verse 15 we have these words he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them uh, in him or in the Greek it can be in it meaning the cross because that's what he was just talking about in chapter 2 there what Paul was just talking about so Jesus ascended to the cross like a king to his throne and he ascended to his throne by way of the cross because Jesus is the king of the Jews and he is the king Of the world. Um, People are fascinated by the book of Revelation, and I just want to uh, go to the book of Revelation for one last scripture this morning. Helps gives uh, give us some context here of the importance of the cross of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus to uh, the theology of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible and and the uh, the ramifications for our lives and for uh, for the, the, the for all of human history. Revelation chapter five, um, verse. 6 and reading following says between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain and and verse 7 says and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song you know there would be music in heaven just like there was here today and people were going to sing and we're going to be singing in heaven what are we going to sing Well, here's a song. It says, They sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then in verse 11 it says, they looked, I looked and, and I heard around the throne and the, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus was no victim. So this is what the disciples didn't get and nobody else got it either. He ascended to the cross. And he ascended to his throne in heaven by way of the cross. He willingly laid down his life on that cross. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all those in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. He still has the scars. Do you know that? He still has the scars. You remember he showed Thomas his scars, right? Yeah. It's the scars that identify him as the Lamb. It's hard for us to imagine sometimes, we can't fully comprehend. Only as much as we are human beings and we know to a point what it means to suffer, what it means to suffer loss, and Jesus of Nazareth is a human being too. In fact, that's why Jesus, the Lord of glory, became a human being, so that he could suffer and die. The only way that God could subject Himself to suffering and/or to death was to become one of us. That's why we celebrate Christmas next month. That's next month. This is November first, right? So I can say that He is Jesus of Nazareth, a real person a real human person. But also, this is the wonder of it all, the Lord of glory who made himself one of us so that he could take our place, represent us, suffer and die for us on that cross. And there he is, fastened up on that cross, bleeding and dying, a spectacle on display, humiliated and crucified for the whole world to see. And you'll want to turn away. You, want to, you won't want to look. It's hard to look. It's hard to see. It's hard to think about. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer. Seems now I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding. Four sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. Why? 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 Oh, how? Is a horrible thought. But why? Because this is where we really get into the theology of the cross. Why? And the answer is that he died for you and me. Jesus said, for this cause have I come into the world. He came to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. It's not just how Jesus died, but why. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You know, in the newsletter this week, when we sent it out, I put a statement in there. I said, we become Christians when we receive the truth of that personally. When we receive the truth about Jesus dying for us personally, that's when we become Christians And in a very real sense, the whole of the Christian life consists of the process of letting that sink into us. Now, I think if you know the first part of that, you're definitely learning the second part. You're you're learning that it is the love that we experience in Christ that compels us and motivates us to, to live for him and to live and love each other. So if you know the first part, then you are learning the second part. But I want to just think as we close this morning a little bit about the first part. The moment that you really understand, acknowledge, and receive the fact that Jesus died for you. That he died for me personally. In that moment is when I become a Christian. See, the, the cross is the crux of the matter. And the cross of Jesus in Scripture is a display, it is a spectacle. It is a giant message from God. It's a crossroad because it confronts us and it forces us to make a decision: which way we're going to go. Because you will want to turn away, but it forces us to make a decision. We either must recognize and receive the message about our sin and our need, and about God's provision for our need or we turn away. The cross is the great crossroad, not only of human history, but of your history and mine. You are at a crossroad today. As we've read that passage of scripture about Jesus suffering and dying on that cross, you know, you don't, you, don't have, you don't have to even go to the Bible to know that it is a historical fact that Jesus Christ lived and died. Next week, we're going to be thinking about Jesus rising again. But, but, but it's a historical fact. Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who was crucified on a Roman cross. But why? That's the crossroad. God has made your sin and his great love for you. A spectacle. What will you decide? Time is it? Quarter two. Eleven forty five. Will you pray with me this morning? Can I can I get you to, to bow in prayer with me? Again, Lord God, I thank you for those gathered here, and I thank you for all who are joining us today as we think about and as we look and as we see our sin placed on Jesus on that cross. And as we see the immense uh, weight of our guilt, and as we recognize your, your justice and your holiness, and as we see your immense love, and mercy and grace in the cross of Jesus. Lord, help us, each one of us individually, Lord, to recognize that for what you want it to be and what you intended it to be. Lord, you went through all of that, all of that, so that my life would never be the same, and that I need not be condemned, but that I might be forgiven. I just receive that, Lord. I receive the forgiveness according to your promise that is there in the cross and in the love of Jesus Christ for my life. And I thank you. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus for dying for me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to offer yourself and to suffer that pain and those indignities and all of it. And I thank you, Lord, that you are a risen, conquering king, seated on the throne of heaven, making intercession for all who will come to you. Lord, I thank you and pray that you would just bless each decision made today Help us to live for you. Help us to proclaim the glorious message of your, your love and your forgiveness and your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.